Welcome to Silicon Valley, home to the world's densest concentration of technology companies. The passions and ambitions of thousands clash and collide over the technologies of tomorrow, clamoring for a place at the table alongside Facebook, Apple, and Google. But it all started in Palo Alto, California, in an unassuming one-car garage. It was 1938 and inspired by a Stanford University professor, William R. Hewlett and David Packard used their $338 in capital to lay down the foundations of what is now HP, today a multinational informational technology company. And still there in a sign in the front of that one-car garage in Palo Alto, and now reads, the birthplace of Silicon Valley. As the garage startup fades into obscurity, the spirit of startups still live within the hills of Northern California. Over the course of the podcast, you will get to hear from the people behind the apps you use every single day on the fundamental values that have shaped their startup experiences. Four years ago, when we started the BSCF, the tech conferences inspired this podcast. Michael was one of our first speakers, and it was all because he replied to a cold email. In fact, that's the thing about Michael. He reads all of his emails, from students to founders to general entrepreneurial enthusiasts. His inbox has always been open and inviting to inquiries of all kinds. It's even on his Twitter bio. When he was just 23, Michael co-founded and became the CEO of Justin TV, which in 2014 rebranded to gaming platform Twitch, and subsequently sold to Amazon for 970 million dollars. A serial entrepreneur. Michael went on to found Social Camp, which sold to Autodesk for $60 million, and now applies his talents to helping discover the next Silicon Valley success as a partner and CEO at Y Combinator, a seed accelerator that has helped launch over 2,000 companies, including Airbnb, DoorDash, and Dropbox. How does he do it? It's simple, by helping each other. Without further ado, here's Michael Siebel decoding Silicon Valley. The first thing I want to talk about is what causes startups to fail. Oftentimes, a lot of people think startups fail because they have a bad idea. They even think they know what a bad idea is, and they think they can read an idea and tell whether it's good or bad. In my experience, working with over a thousand startups in my time at YC, bad ideas are not the thing that kills startups. And one of the pieces of evidence of that is that I started my company、uh, with my three co-founders, and it started as an online reality TV show, and it sold in 2014 for almost a billion dollars. So,、um, bad ideas don't kill startups. One thing that often kills startups is the founders lose the faith. That's something that's really important. Sometimes startups start working quickly, but more often than not, they don't. And one of the things I've noticed is that. Somewhere between a year and 18 months in, if a founder doesn't see something really exploding, they start losing faith in their idea, in their hypothesis. And so, so that's something you should keep in mind. Sometimes it takes longer than 18 months to figure something out. And if you lose the faith, you'll never find out the actual thing you could have built. One thing that I challenge founders to do is to spend more time thinking about the problem they want to solve. It's a lot rarer to lose the faith if you really like your users and you really like the problem you're solving for them. It's a lot more common to lose the faith if you're in the game to make money or to give speeches or to be in the press or to be famous. This is a game that almost everyone fails at, 
And so sometimes just sticking it out is the thing that separates you from your competitors. The next thing, excellence in startups is very different from excellence in the real world. Being above average isn't good enough. In startups, those people get knocked out every single day. Every day. And I think that's not something that's talked about enough. People use the word extraordinary a lot. But really, the way that I think about extraordinary is a way that one of our partners, Dalton, described it, which is, how many orders of magnitude better than average are you? If you're going to be successful in the startup game, it means that basically you're going to be more successful than everyone else around you and all of your peers. The first day of YC, we look at a batch of about 400 founders, 200 companies. We say, just about five of you will actually accomplish your goal, build a large company that serves a large audience and provides them with a valuable service. Five out of 200. So that's something you should remember. So much of being good at a startup means being very, very, very good. Like not just good compared to your peers. Needless to say, it's also helpful if you have a really high level of commitment and it also requires a lot of luck. So even if you are really good, there's a lot of luck. And the reality is startups are a lot more like sports teams. And there's kind of two depressing realities about sports teams. If you're on a 15-person basketball team and you're not one of the top 15 people at tryouts, you're not even on the team. And if you're team member 10 through 15, you're on the team, but you don't play. That's a lot more like startups. There are many, many, many people who want to be a professional athlete. There are very few who are successful, and oftentimes they have to sacrifice a lot in order to get that success. You know, people talk about work-life balance a lot, and if you're choosing the startup world, you're choosing to give up some life and absorb a lot of work. The next thing you need to be careful about is where you get advice. If you need to be better than all the people around you, then typically using your peers as your primary source of advice is not going to work. This is also different and new. But imagine in a world where all of your peers mathematically are most likely to fail. Be very careful about where you get your advice from. What I will say though about your peers is that the most viable thing they can do is be your support system. Interestingly enough, a lot of people perceive investors as kind of these all-knowing mentors and guidance and support. In reality, the primary thing they give you is money. And you don't get to spend a lot of time with your investors compared to you know, the amount of time you have to spend working on your company. And so a lot of the times you have to figure out what the support system that's going to keep you motivated, keep you dealing with stress, um, what that support system is. And, and that's where your peers are really valuable. One of the reasons why YC funds a batch instead of funding individual companies is for this reason, so that we can give founders peers who do startups and therefore know what the life is like. I often find it funny when people kind of come to me and say, well, my friends in banking just don't understand what it's like, or my friends in the PhD program just don't understand what it's like. And it's like, you're right, they don't. They'll be able to, you know, commiserate with you, but they won't really understand what the life is like. So seek out other founders to get that support. When you talk to early stage founders, they kind of sometimes look at investors like this combination of like all-knowing beings, gods, perfect creatures. It's really awkward. There's a lot of hero worship amongst early stage founders um, to investors. People can give them money. When you talk to late stage founders, they often see investors kind of like service providers, like lawyers and accountants. Like, yes, I need money to do what I want to do, and I guess I have to talk to this person to get it, so I will talk to them, and then I will do what I want to do. 
you know, when talking to a group of young people, oftentimes a lot of people come up to me and say like, oh, like I want to be an investor in startups. I don't want to be a founder. Like investors are the cool kids and founders suck. And so I just want to be clear, right? Investors help, but founders change the world. And when you talk to the most successful founders and you talk about, you know, how they got there, it's extremely rare that the person who's sitting on their board who gave them money is the first thing that comes out of their mouth on why they were able to accomplish what they did. It's extremely rare. So let's kind of stop hero worshiping the investors. It's okay to hero worship the founders, the good ones anyways, the bad ones suck. But just remember that, like you all are not living within a system, you guys are actually recreating the system. And like that's far more valuable than writing checks. There's too much emphasis put on ideas, period. There are many other factors that are probably going to have a much stronger um, impact on your likelihood of success. So uh, let's name some of them. One, your co-founders. Way more likely to have an impact. Well, do you actually like spending time with them? Because you're going to spend a fuck ton of time with them. Um, two, your commitment. How much are you hedging your bets? You know, are you pursuing two startup ideas and applying to Google? Well, okay, then you're hedging your bets. And then I would say the third one is your passion. More often than not, when I see founders competing between two ideas, what they're trying to figure out is what's the better business. What I love about that is like, why do you think you're qualified to know? Like, this is extreme luck. That's like going to a high school basketball game and saying, oh, that person, definitely the next Jordan. I can see it from right here, <laughs> right? Like, impossible, I have no idea, right? The reason why YC accepts so many companies isn't because we're nice, it's because we have no idea who's gonna succeed, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, <laughs> So what I'd be trying to gauge is not which is the better business. What I'd be trying to gauge is which of those things is your team going to fully commit itself to when things are not looking good? Because in every startup's path, there are times when things don't look good. So which one of those things are you not going to quit? Um, we can help you turn anything into a good business. YC turned a online reality TV show into Twitch, right? So like, we can help you do anything to make it a good business, but we can't help you if you quit. As a investor now, I'll tell you, um, there's this funny thing I do whenever I take a picture with founders, is I always like go to the side of the picture, and they always wanna push me to the middle. And I'm always like, look, if you're successful, you'll be the most famous person in this photo. Like, you will be the, the change person and like, I'll be the person who might or might not be listed on the bottom of the picture in the caption. So um, yeah, you should realize that. If you are interested in starting a startup, that's awesome. Congratulations. That puts you part of a very special club of somewhat crazy people, um, but people who will support each other and help each other around the world. If you're not interested in starting a startup, that's totally fine. This thing is not for everyone. I would never go around to a bunch of colleges saying everyone should try to become an, a professional basketball player. So I sure as hell am not gonna go around saying everyone should be a startup founder. I think that what the startup world has taught me is that I can't be lazy about my personal time. 
I have to cherish it and I have to get the most out of it because when work comes, I have to be 120%. Um, it's funny because I just had, uh, well, my wife just had a, a baby about a year and a half ago and family actually does the same thing. You know, suddenly there's this big thing that wants your time and if you're not organized, you can't be productive in the other parts of your life. So I'd argue that like in a weird way, startups force you to not waste that time you're spending in your life because it really puts a tax on it. And there are lots of different ways to make an impact on the world. And so if you're unsure about it, don't think that there's any moral judgment for not wanting to be a founder. All too often in the Valley, sometimes people think it's like, oh, founder, you're not cool. And that's really not a good way of thinking about it. There are always very strong competitors. Do you, when you see success or like failed examples, what do you see are their strategy or any other key points you think are important to decide win or lose? So the question is about competition and how important competition is to an early stage startup. What I'll tell you is this. Um, there's far more actual advice written for post-product market fit later stage companies than pre-product market fit companies. And far more of the standard business advice and like business school advice is for post-product market fit companies. Companies where they already have something that's working and they're scaling. Um, competition is often an issue for a post-product market fit company. But what people don't tell you is that the vast majority of startups die before they ever build something that anyone really wants. So the competition isn't what kills you, it's the fact that like, you didn't build anything people wanted at all. And like, that's like the cold, hard reality. The cold, hard like, fact at the base of most failed startups is that like, if you hand their product to the people they think are gonna love it, they don't love it. Done. <laughs> and so, um, what I would say is that for an early stage startup, competition is completely irrelevant. Um, in terms of it's not gonna be the thing that kills you most of the time. You should know about competition, right? Because you should know about your industry. You should be an expert in your industry. You should especially know if someone's tried to do what you were doing in the past and failed. You should have some opinions about why they failed and why you won't. Um, but I would never choose an idea or not choose an idea based on the fact that there are competitors in the market. Um, the example I always love to choose here is just Google. Everyone thought search was a mature market in 1999, completely mature. Uh, turns out they were all wrong. Um, and so uh, everyone thought that like Facebook as a core product owned social networking, right? If you, if you ask people in let's say 2012, they'd say social networking, done. And 2012 is the, the year that Instagram came out. So, um, yeah, competition should not be a primary focus. I'm gonna take this on a route, actually, to kind of expand even further. Most business stuff and business advice is not important to early stage startups, period. Most business advice. Um, if you think about business school and business advice, it is usually built for people who are going into middle and executive management at existing companies. It is not built for people who are starting new companies. Most business schools are not training entrepreneurs. They're training managers. So once again, 
be careful about your sources of advice in the startup world. It turns out the startup world is very small and there are not that many people who are qualified to provide advice. And very many prestigious people attempt to and they're not really doing you much of a service because they're trying to take lessons that they learned from American Airlines in the 80s and apply it to you know, some app in 2020. All right, next question. Next, just right here. Hi, I have two questions. Can we just do one? Because there are a lot of questions. Oh, all right. Um, so, uh, do you bring advisors for advising startups in Y Combinator, and how do you choose them? We don't. Oh. Do I get to ask the second question? Sure. <laughs> That's an uh, easy one. Yes, no questions. You get two. All right. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, you talked about how, you know, when, for, uh, for like young uh, entrepreneurs, you have the program of early decision to help them make the decision uh, when parents are against it. I'm, I'm turning the question the other way. If suppose you have a young entrepreneur type of person with potential, uh, but they are not taking the risk or taking the step, you know, when you see the potential, how do you then motivate them? Don't. It's <laughs> two yes and no questions. Like, like, and, and this is a really important point, right? And I'll bring it back to sports, right? Did someone sit there and tell Michael Jordan every day after practice, you have to practice four more hours? No. No, they told him he had to go to practice, and then when all his teammates left, what did he do? Like, once again, that comes from the inside, right? Like, that comes from you really give a shit. No one can teach you to give a shit. <laughs> That's the game. All right. Hi, Michael. Uh, oftentimes, we hear people say that VC invest in the founder or entrepreneur, not necessarily their ideas. So in early stage investment, how do you keep a balance between investing in the people and the ideas? Do you, which one do you like way more on it? Yeah, I, you know, as a founder, I always hated hearing that, right? Like, I always hated it. It's like, oh, we don't invest in the idea, we invest in the founder. Um, if I were to be more accurate about that, I would say we invest in evidence of execution. Now, the earlier the stage of the company, the more that evidence has to come with, from what the founder has done before the startup. And the further along the company, the more that evidence has to come from what the founder has done inside of the startup. But fundamentally, it's evidence of execution. The number one risk we take is we give you money and you don't do anything with it. Um, and you'd be surprised at how often that happens. So yes, so it's evidence of execution. So when I'm reading a YC application and the company is two weeks old, right, there's only so much I can get from what they've done in their startup. So I'm looking for what else have they done? And vice versa, if the founder says, I've been working on this thing for a year, then I want some really clear evidence they can execute. Now let's be clear. Like, that doesn't necessarily mean that the, you have to have $100,000 in revenue. It just means that like, you have to have execution of talking to customers, releasing product, iterating product, somehow making progress. And what's challenging is that most founders believe that they can't make progress without money. And the revolution of this game was software. Like back in the day when you know, people invested in companies like Mines, it turns out you can't mine the side of a mountain without money. Like, you can't do it. Well, with software, especially if you know how to code, 
you can do a lot without money. And so what, a lot of what we have to do is kind of reprogram founders to not think, you know, it goes idea, some form of a team, money, then launch, then growth. It really goes like team slash problem, launch, interact with customers, learn, then maybe growth slash money. And like that's the difference with software. That's why being a programmer is so powerful in this world, because you can bring product into the market without any additional money. And so um, I think when people are talking about we fund the founder, I think that's what they mean. We fund evidence of, of, of progress. And it was interesting because I remember a founder who applied to YC, and it was really, really early stage company, and so we couldn't look at a lot of advice, but he shared an anecdote of basically growing up in Colombia during um, the drug wars. And basically he was like, look, here's the deal. To get to high school every day, you had to walk in places that normal people would never want to walk. But if I had to get out of there, you had to do it. And you think, well, shit, that's okay. Well, I don't know how your startup's going to do, but I bet you've already done harder shit. Um, just to get here, <laughs> and so maybe I'll take a bet. Um, but that didn't have to do with what school the person went to. Wait, we can take last two questions. Oh man, this went fast. Okay, uh, there. Uh, my question is, so tech is pretty interesting, startups are fun for me, but the big question I have is, if you're, not the t if you're from a minority group, for example, or you're more diverse, to what extent do you think you still have access to the same opportunities of partners, funding, and how is that different? That's a great question. So what access do you have if you're an underrepresented founder? Um, positives and negatives. The positive is that the prime motivation of the people in the startup world who are the gatekeepers, typically the investors, are to make money. Like, full stop, prime motivation. So, if you can demonstrate that you're executing in a way that might give them a chance of making a lot of money, um, they have a lot of interest in putting all of their other biases aside. The negative. Um, oftentimes, if you're underrepresented, which means you're black, you're female, you're Latina, there's all kinds of different ways you don't necessarily fit the pattern or look like Mark Zuckerberg. Oftentimes, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. And like where this usually comes off is that you'll hear some story about somebody you know who basically has nothing and you know is kind of incompetent who raised money. <laughs> and you're like, wow, that person sucks and they raised money. <laughs> it's some way, shape or form, they got the benefit of the doubt. And um, it's hard to rely on the benefit of the doubt if you don't fit the pattern. What I will say, the comforting thing that I find about this is that you're not entering into an organized system with organized bias. You're entered into a disorganized system with gatekeepers who want to make a lot of money. And so, unlike what it might feel like inside of a company with like systemic bias and systemic issues, um, in the startup world, if you execute, you will get resources. And I think for, you know, a lot of the underrepresented people in the audience, there's always this thing in the back of your head that you have to be a little better. 
And in the startup world, that same thing continues. Um, what's kind of given me confidence being an underrepresented founder in the startup world is that there are a thousand things that could have killed us. Literally a thousand. Um, about 20 things almost did. I don't know if race was one of them, but I know that race is just one of a thousand things that could have killed us. And so that kind of kept me motivated to move on and, and make sure I can't control the race thing, but I can try to control the other 999 things. All right, last question. Right here, in the back there. Hi, Michael, my name is Christina. We met before. Uh, I have a question on what is called the uh, unfair advantage. So I heard, you know, as a startup and how to compete the big guys and you need an unfair advantage. How, how do you do that? Do you believe such a thing and what, what do you think about it? Thank you. Yes, so unfair advantage. I often feel like startup world is like guerrilla warfare in that like oftentimes there are large incumbents that you have to compete against either directly or indirectly. And if you're trying to fight a large incumbent head on, you're gonna lose. So you kind of have to ask yourself, where is their tactical weakness? And so if you think about this in the context of, you know, the US Revolutionary War, you know, you're George Washington, the incumbents are the Redcoats. If you just march your dudes up next to their dudes, you're gone, game over, not gonna happen. So what's your equivalent of hiding in the trees? What's your equivalent of tactical retreats? What's your equivalent of figuring out how to get a battle on your terms versus battle on their terms? And when people talk about unique insight, that's really what they're talking about. What they wanna know is that like, in your understanding of this market, where's the blind spot of the incumbent company or system that you can exploit? And then how can you put all of your resources and focus behind hitting that blind spot? And there's a great example of this, right? Slack is a perfect recent example of this. Microsoft has an effective monopoly on the vast majority of B2B software, just period. Uh, unclear why the government doesn't do anything about that, but it's just the way it is. And Microsoft's number one way of competing against a startup is literally just copying the product and or buying a shittier competitor and then giving it away for free. It's a, such a great, great strategic <laughs> way to compete. So if you look at how Slack played the game, right? They knew, well, if we hire a bunch of salespeople and try to compete against Microsoft salespeople, we're fighting on Microsoft's terms. We're not gonna win that battle. So instead they thought, well, if we can distribute through the employee base, so by the time the executive team even knows that Slack exists, 80% of their companies are daily active, 80% of their employees are daily active users, and it'll be super painful to rip it out. That's kind of how you attack where your opponent's the weakest. Most people don't voluntarily use Microsoft software. It is hoisted upon them at some point. Um, and, and, and Slack could attack a different way. So what investors really want to understand is what's your understanding of the competitive landscape slash the big incumbents and where are they weak? So when they ask your secret sauce, your competitive advantage, those are all just like identify the weak point that you're going to exploit. And what's so interesting is that oftentimes founders obsess about their idea and they think that's super important and they kind of leave this thing behind. And it's like, well, in some fundamental way, the world is a certain way and you want to change it. That usually means you have to disrupt someone or something or some company, which means you have to kill them. 
So what's going to be your game plan for killing them? Um, so that's the answer to that question. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, one of the things I tell every audience, um, and I'm getting worse at this, I apologize, is that I actually do reply to all my emails. My email address is michael at ycombinator.com. Um, if you talk to people, like, you'll start hearing stories about how like, they emailed me and then I replied and then blank happened. Like, I think that's the reason why I was ever here. <laughs> and a lot of YC companies, well, they think they get in because they emailed me. Um, in reality, they were building good companies and I just told them to apply. But a lot of people's journeys start with just the cold email. So you shouldn't feel like you can't email me. When I say this, 90 to 95% of any audience I say this to um, doesn't think it's true and they don't email me. And I think to myself, okay, if you're gonna opt out of success, this is your choice. Um, but if you email me, I will try my best to reply. Um, and if you email me an email that I can read and reply in 30 seconds, you might be shocked at how fast I reply. Um, <laughs> and you can use this tactic for other people too. So thank you very much for having me. Good luck. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Decode Silicon Valley. Our show is produced by Himalaya, our favorite podcast platform, with Samantha Land, Ariel Liu, Jenny, and me, Bob. We wouldn't have been able to do this without the support of the members of Shinet, including Shro, Chef, and James, and all the amazing people who had made BSCF a success, including the students who showed up in support. Last but not the least, thank you to Michael for helping us realize that perseverance is the true key to winning the startup world. That's all we have for today's episode. See you guys in the next one.